The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit pixelating your personality and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 345 with guest Dmitry Osipov, recorded live Tuesday, May 20th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who recently took the Enterprise Service Bus to the Delta Quadrant, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here. It's another week, and uh, I'm in the studio. I had a good time this week uh, recording some tunes. My friend and partner out there in British Columbia, Richard Campbell, is on the phone. Hey, man, how are you? I'm well, sir. Last week before Tech Ed. Yeah, man. I'm so psyched. I'm so psyched. There's going to be great stuff there this year. Monster show. Absolutely monster. Yep. And uh, we're going to be, of course, all over that show. We're going to be doing virtual Tech Ed and hosting it, hosting several live .NET Rocks panel discussions at Virtual Tech Ed. Yes, we are. A whole stack of them. And don't forget Speaker Idol. Speaker Idol. So it's been really a challenge to get Speaker Idol together because there's so many speakers at the conference this year that uh, you know there hasn't been a lot of folks to find that haven't spoken. In fact, I still have a couple of slots left for the regular show Really? And the wildcard slot. So maybe we should just put it out to the listeners. If you're going to TechEd either week and you think you could be a TechEd speaker, enter the contest. Send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net, and let me know you're going to be there. You've never spoken for TechEd before, and you'd like to. And I'll put you into the contest. There's only a couple of spaces, so I may say no to a bunch of people, but I'm telling you, I'd love to get you into the, into the contest. Now, the contest is basically you get five minutes to do any kind of presentation you like to impress the judges. You get feedback from the judges, and then one winner is selected at the end. Right. And then we, we'll do three heats, right? Tuesday, Wednesday, yep. Thursday, over lunch hour. Each of the winners from those heats go to the finals on Friday, and the winner of that gets a speaking slot, TechEd 2009. Full ride. That's your airfare, your hotel, the accolades of your peers, a huge room to present in. It'll be an amazing experience. Yeah. All right, Richard, let's just uh, get into Better Know Framework. All right, guy. What do you got? Of course, Better Know Framework is this uh, segment I've been doing of the show where I highlight different pieces of the .NET framework so that you can look them up later so that you know what's there. That's the whole idea. It's not training. It's just a little little nudge. Say, hey, go check this out. So today I'm going to talk about fields. Now, a field is a variable defined in a class. And in, there's a system.reflection.fieldinfo class that provides access to the metadata for a field within a class and provides dynamic set and get functionality for the field. So if you look at type.getfields, there's a, a chart of what type of, uh, of field is returned and what type isn't and why. 
So uh, it's good to know. Now, reflection is something that we have talked about on the show many times. And um, it's something that you want to do carefully because there's always a performance hit when you do reflection, especially if you're iterating through lots of members and lots of fields. You don't want to get caught doing reflection in some kind of loop. Yeah, where if you do, you just want to make sure and test your performance and test the bounds of the performance. Like, yeah. how how much are we actually going to have to do this and is it going to impact? So, so make sure you do that. But, you know, if you're part of a long-running process and a workflow or something like that that's asynchronous and time doesn't matter to you, why, you know, reflection is a wonderful thing. There's so much information that you can get with system.reflection.fieldinfo about a particular field in a class. So, awesome. system.reflection.fieldinfo. Richard. Yes, sir. Your turn. Okay. How about I read you an email? Yeah, please. Here's one. Hi, guys. Great shows. I only have a five-minute commute to work. What's he oh, downstairs? Bummer. Uh, so, I don't get to listen to you then, but whenever I'm out jogging, you guys are right there with me. Awesome. A show on good general design principles and practices would be great. You bring up the idea of separation of concerns or DRY during other talks, but a single show focusing on those and other ideas would be great too. Now, this is an interesting thought because you and I have been batting this around a bit. Is should we sort of drill into basics again? You know, it's been a while yeah. since we've done that sort of thing. I'm really feeling the pull to get back to basics. One more uh, comment here. On a previous show, you mentioned that you both have gone through house and studio renovations. Since people always bring up the analogy of software construction and building construction, I think it might be interesting how the two are similar or dissimilar in a real-life situation. I feel when people make this comparison, they are talking about idealized building construction and ignore that house renovation that took twice as long and cost three times as much. Yeah, I suspect in the end that they probably are very similar, but the build construction process has similar shortcomings that we tend to ignore, discount. And that's mm. from Frank Fish. You Thanks, know, Frank, Frank. I, I tend to think of this old house. They have a mantra, which is measure twice, cut once. You know? But I also think that, and this is, you want to talk about agile process, because of course my house is torn apart right now. It wasn't until we had the walls all ripped out that we really even knew what the problems were. That's so right. here we are. Two months into the construction project, and only now we're starting to get a clearer picture of what it's actually going to take to complete the renovation. Yeah. Well, that always happens with any software development project is there are some things that you just have to expect that are going to change because you don't know what you need until you're in the middle of it. Right. And you can't really measure it. I mean, I think the big difference with a house is that generally speaking, you can't just write it off. You know, software projects can simply fail, but a house renovation, eventually somebody has to live there. So you're going to knock something out sooner or later. I also think that construction has much cleaner bounds and testing rules. You know, the the construction code is a lot more coherent than any kind of programming uh, rules are. Software is so much more amorphous. So one of the guys on the work crew today asked me about being a software developer. He's maybe 22. And he's a laborer, nice kid, works hard. And uh, so he heard that I was a programmer, and we talked a little bit. And you know what I did? Hmm. I dropped all my Steve McConnell books on him. Oh, wow. I said, here's code complete. Read this and report back. Yep. Great thing to do. (laughs) So you want to be a programmer, here's a great place to start. Excellent place to start. All right, Richard, let's introduce Dimitri. Uh, Dimitri Asipov is a senior program manager at Patterns and Practices at Microsoft. He's worked on the Service Factory, Service Factory version 2, and the Enterprise Service Bus. Welcome to the show, Dimitri. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for coming. Now, I've, you know, I haven't heard a lot about the Web Service Software Factory. I don't think we've ever done a show on it. And I really want to get into the Enterprise Service Bus. Before we go tearing off in that direction, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what the Web Service Software Factory is all about. Uh yeah, sure. Uh, Web Service Software Factory uh, is about uh, development tools and uh, best practices in forms of uh, guidance of how to build services. So uh, we did version 2 for um, WCF, and that was built um, using our guidance automation toolkit. So developers could actually rapidly generate code, integrate it, and all the... Um, Toolkit is integrated with Visual Studio. So we released it for um, WeedB and um, helped 
to define best practices and implement all the recipes to generate contracts. And then we shipped also a security guidance package to secure uh, WCF services um, using different security patterns. What kind of options do you have in the in the factory when you're when you're creating a service? What are the kinds of things that you that you get to choose from? Well, uh, you can choose from defining, I mean, um, data contracts, service contracts, then, um, you define how you host and we support, uh, web services, which means that we host an IS. And actually with modeling edition, which we internally call version three, that we released in November, this story became even better, uh, because what we released is factory that is DSL based. Uh, we do have three models. So you get to model the contracts? Is that basically? Yes. Yeah. So you can model data contracts, you can model service contracts, uh, and then you can model uh, host, which we call host model, to actually define clients and um, uh, oh. how services are hosted, define uh, bindings and so on. Okay. And when you when we're talking about contracts, we're talking about the, the interfaces between the services, basically. The, right. That's what we call service contracts. The arguments. Now, the in the modeling edition, we actually made um, um, a few changes. First, uh, and bigger change is DSL. So you actually use model as a master to generate the code. Uh, the second uh, biggest breakthrough that we did is we decided that models supposed to be technology neutral. So effectively, mm. if you define contracts uh, in a model, data contracts or service contracts, then you can make a delayed decision if uh, you want to generate code for ISMX and WCF. Mm. And then what we provide is uh, what we call technology uh, extensions, which are basically um, extenders for model elements where you can capture um, technology-specific properties. So the closest analogy is that the main model is like a Christmas tree and down extenders are ornaments. So effectively, <laughs> you define how to um, uh, put these ornaments on a tree and then we generate the code. And it, it, when you were talking about this, I was, um, I was thinking about how Astoria works, and I'm wondering if this is a nice fit. With Astoria. And now Astoria is uh, called uh, ADO.net uh, Data Services. I think that's what they've changed the name to now. Uh, uh, as far as I know, uh, it's still um, Astoria. Mm -hmm. uh, so from... Um, uh, the integration between the factory and Astoria, um, we do not have this integration right now. Oh, really? But um, uh, what we also did is we included full uh, guidance of how to extend the factory and then how to add additional um, uh, domains to the factory. So effectively, uh, Just a matter of you time. can add additional models for uh, different technologies. You can add new models, let's say, for security. You can add uh, different uh, models for different hosts and deployments. And we do provide guidance for that along with uh, the factory. So the factory itself is not WCF specific. Same approach can be used to model, I mean, any uh, problem domain. So at some point we could actually see a story uh, be a generated service from the service factory. Yeah, sure. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. it's great architecture. I'm still trying to get my head around the whole domain-specific language concept. Is that really going to mostly benefit folks that are in ongoing development, multiple versions, where they're going to continue to add new services? Uh, I think domain-specific language is uh, very uh, effective for um, cases when you actually have a domain problem, which is very well-framed, and then you can... Uh, use that model to actually communicate uh, uh, with others. So we see the main uh, specific languages are coming up, and then uh, we see it's used in um, other uh, products here. So effectively, I, I think that's a big future there um, regarding what's going to happen next. So uh, 
Yeah, that was a good idea, Richard, about talking about this before we get into the enterprise service bus. We talked to uh, Christian Weyer about the internet service bus, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of the next step from an enterprise service bus. But um, why don't we just go ahead and get into it and define what this is and uh, you know, even outside the realm of Microsoft for a moment, because, you know, these these do exist outside of Microsoft, of course. Yeah. Well, um, uh, what we say is enterprise service bus is architectural paradigm for uh, policy-driven mediation. Now, um, policy-driven uh, mediation, is that what she said? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Policy-driven, uh, policy-driven service mediation. Services. So, uh, effectively, if you look at uh, definition from Gartner and then definition from Sonic, you'll probably see that um, there is no firm definition or agreement in industry of um, around what service bus is. So, effectively, uh, we uh, decided to uh, show a pragmatic approach and then identify patterns that um, were identified for service bus and then show using our guidance how these can be implemented for uh, BizTalk 2006R2. So that's what guidance is about. Right. So BizTalk is sort of the implementation of the ESB on in the Microsoft camp. Right. So uh, we do believe that BizTalk is the future. It has been on the market for a big while, it's with Army Knife for integration. And what we do in the guidance, we show best practices for using BizTalk infrastructure services and all the core mechanisms um, uh, like BizTalk pipes up. And uh, using our components, we illustrate how to uh, implement these best practices. Now, it's, the enterprise service bus is not without its critics in terms of architecture. And, uh, you know, I hear things, I, the things I hear people say are, well, you know, it's sort of monolithic and black boxy to be living in an SOA environment, you know, where everything is sort of dependent on this one point of, of uh, you know, one point, a single point of failure. You could say that, but it's really one point where all these things come through together into one sort of grand central station. You know, do, do, oh. how, how, what do you say to that? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I disagree that ESB is one single point of failure. Uh, so, in fact, uh, what we do, and if you look at the stock infrastructure and how B stock is clustered, then this is simply not true, right? And for other implementations as well. Now, what uh, ESB does, is basically provides a level of indirection to uh, mediate protocols, mediate services, dynamic transformation, dynamic routing, and these core concepts that um, are uh, too expensive to, uh, I would say, uh, implement, right? Uh, Because if you look at what's happening right now um, in the enterprise, uh, you deal with different kinds of services, and then uh, these services evolve, and then these services need to be governed. So effectively, one, uh, once you uh, mediate through ESB and identify, I mean, how you um, uh, interact, how these services interact, and effectively being composed, then you do provide the freedom for. Um, uh, you're moving uh, enterprise to actually succeed, right? Enterprise is not static. Well, no requirements change. New new services are added. Service new versions of services are published. So effectively, I mean, we all go and driven by business, not as by yeah. architecture, right? I guess what I meant by single point of failure is, yeah, you have a cluster and everything. So you know, it's not just like a one machine, but. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have routers and you have network cables and you have, you know, with everything concentrated in one place, that that if there is a if there is an issue, I mean, it just sort of doesn't really fit with the SOA model, which is spreading things around and, and keeping things separated. 
Well, uh, first of all, in uh, ESB, uh, well, uh, you had another interview for uh, ISB, right? Yeah. So when, when we're talking about ESB here, uh, we're talking about enterprise. So effectively, within right. enterprise, we do provide uh, clustering, we do provide failover, and we do provide the, uh, the infrastructure out of the box for BStock. Now, uh, if you're talking about... Um, Uptime and SLAs, then, uh, if the services are local, then they should be provisioned with, for desired SLAs within the enterprise. If the, if the services are, um, outside of enterprise and you use ESB for that, mm. then of course, uh, the SLA should be taken to the account, right? Because every time, uh, you partner with somebody, it's, it's, it's about SLA, right? You cannot right. be blocked by your business because somebody just does not perform. So, and there are many scenarios when these SLAs cannot, cannot be met. And uh, the SLAs are broken, and effectively you have to find alternative um, ways to keep business going, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's basically uh, related to what business problem you are trying to solve. Then having a discussion of, uh, I mean, what do we do on technology level for ESB, right? Okay. Now. I'm, but whenever I look at an enterprise service bus diagram, I see, and maybe we should just work through these sort of layers. Sure. We're taking all these different disparate services. And I, and whenever I think enterprise service bus, I think mainframes working with .NET apps. And so the, the sort of starting point of all of this is wrapping these mainframe calls in web services. So it doesn't just really start out as just a, a communications layer that we're able to communicate with each other. Well, uh, what you're talking about here is basically legacy services, right? Right. So, and uh, you can communicate with legacy services in multiple ways. It doesn't mean that it has to be through ESB. What ESB does provide you and what does Bestock provide you in our case is a large number of adapters that you can use for different cases to hook up with um, SAP, Siebel, and um, other systems. Uh, so rather than having to write these web services over my mainframe, BizTalk is effectively providing them for me? Well, what I'm trying to say is that uh, if, for example, uh, you want to integrate with uh, SAP MQ-Series or, uh, let's say, a CRM, let, right. let's take MQ, for example, um, because uh, it's it's very popular. So uh, what you get in BStock is adapter for um, MQ series. So effectively, you don't need to write your own. And then uh, what you get from ESB guidance is uh, integration with GMS. So we actually utilize that adapter for uh, sending message with the um, MQRFH header that... Um, GMS can understand, right? And, and GMS stands for? Uh, Java Message Service. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, just the idea of having this obnoxious, uh, obnoxious, the idea of having this agnostic protocol. I've always thought that that would all be web services, but it sounds like once I involve BizTalk, I can avoid a web service layer in a few points. Um. Well... If you uh, if you look at uh, ESB, uh, essentially it's uh, not only SOA; uh, it is enterprise application integration as well. Right. So, so effectively, that example that we um, just discussed over uh, for GMS uh, just gives you the idea of how you can integrate and mediate uh, the protocol, right? So protocol mediation is one of the core capabilities of ESB. So I can use uh, one protocol on one side and actually mediate over another one. So I can submit message over uh, HTTP and then transform it and then route it. And then um, uh, the destination will be an MQ in this case. So for that simple one-way scenario, right? 
So in that regard, ESB provides you a level of indirection of how this transformation routing is performed, right, from the ESB consumer standpoint. Now, maybe the thing I'm still sort of wrestling with is, are we now not needing to write code specifically to speak to that mainframe through its its web service, but rather we speak to BizTalk and say, I need to do this, and it figures out what other service will do it? Right, because it adds the business logic in the form of policy. So that's that's the benefit of the ESB, is that have, you have all the policy in one place and all the business logic in one place, and it's not spread well, out in different technologies all over the place. Well, uh, I, I think uh, the, uh, to answer your question, in ideal scenario, if you want to support uh, an integration and define how what's, what's the policy to invoke uh, your services, right, and uh, you do not have a client capable to execute this sequence of services, nor perform transformation, nor perform protocol mediation, then ESB is for you, right? So you rely on on uh, ESB, and in our case, uh, BSTOC and ESB guidance to do that for you. So it's basically an uh, architectural decision. Uh, also, if you look at the guidance um, uh, and the architecture that we have, we actually do provide core services out of the box uh, that clients can consume for, uh, let's say, resolution and transformation. So uh, transformation is basically um, invoking the stock map, and the implementation of that service is completely decoupled from uh, the stock message box, so it's just on-demand transformations very fast. Uh, with resolution, you can uh, invoke uh, our resolution service and then uh, pass there um, uh, what we call resolver connection string. So effectively, it's the query for resolver type and resolver parameters, and we support different ways to resolve. We do support UDDI, we do support BRE, um, uh, when uh, you execute for, I mean, uh, ESB to perform, we do have static resolver. We can have XPath to actually uh, get resolver information from message payload. And then this model is absolutely extensible. So effectively, you can write your own resolver. So are we now saying that our, our client apps go off and ask to the service layer, how do I get a customer? And then it's going to tell, it resolves to say, well, here's how you do it. Right. So effectively, if client is capable to uh, uh, communicate directly with point-to-point, uh, we do allow that. All client needs to do is to figure out um, how to resolve the map by calling resolver, then transform message using our transformation service, Right. then call resolver uh, uh, with uh, UDDI connection string to resolve target and point of service that's going to consume, send message directly, get response back, and then use transform back again for point-to-point communication. So we do allow that to happen. And the whole reason so, to do all of that would really be for performance, that I could get this information, resolve it on a given startup, and then be able to call directly to the service quickly, rather than having to proxy through that that central service every time. Well, uh, keep in mind that uh, BSTOC architecture is uh, centered around message box, right? Yeah. So we do have uh, two kinds of scenarios. Scenarios that uh, require routing where BSTOC... Um, and the ESB guidance um, provide you this mediation, right? And then we use publish, subscribe, and message books uh, uh, as core parts of bespoke architecture. Now, another scenario is low latency scenario, where you effectively do not have messages persisted and dispatched in the message box, right? So it's all direct transformation and... Um, routing to endpoint and receiving response back and effectively there is no persistent point created for a message uh, to actually dispatch. Dimitri, I don't think we've talked about 
um, biz talk in this way before on the show, like the, the message box is a concept that we haven't even talked about before. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I can pick up from the context of what you're saying that it's the, the message store or the, the message transport or both of those things, but can you explain it to us? No, uh, well, sure I can. Um, we can probably rewind that later. So, uh, core architecture of BizTalk is based on, uh, publish subscribe. So right. effectively, one message is received, uh, by, uh, receive port by, or an associated, uh, receive location for that port. Then message is going through the pipeline, then it's persisted in the message box, and then based on message context properties, this message is routed to the subscriber. So effectively, when message is submitted, you use message books as persistent point. That's where messages are stored and they're, they're picked up, uh, from for, um, uh, further processing, right? Depending on what type of subscriber you have. You may have a send port, you may have an orchestration that subscribes for, um, <clears throat> the particular event when, um, uh, context properties match, uh, the subscription filter, right? So that's basically, I mean, the core infrastructure of BizTalk. Okay. Now I'm just thinking about, this sounds like the way BizTalk would always be used. Is there really any other way? Is like BizTalk effectively just an enterprise service bus product? That that's what it does? We've really branded it that way? Or is there, is some way to use BizTalk that wouldn't fall into that sort of ESB model? Well, uh, one, uh, we're talking about this talk, uh, for enterprise application integration, it has been, uh, very successful without, uh, ESB. Very successful in the market. Very successful right now. So if you look at, uh, R2 that we released, uh, it does provide out of the box, uh, support for WCF. So uh, it, it, it's very, very good. Now, what, uh, when we're talking about ESB, we do believe that BizTalk as a product implements core patterns that we consider to be, um, a part, uh, consider that belong to ESB. And then additional patterns and their realization, uh, we actually provide in the guidance, right? Hey, this is Carl, just taking a minute with a message from our friends at Telerik. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 Ajax applications with Web 1.0 components? That's right, you just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components, and that's exactly what Telerik has done. Their RAD controls for ASP.NET Ajax suite is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET Ajax API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple properties you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET Ajax loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. So visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET Ajax right now and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, so maybe I'm just trying to clearly understand what makes an enterprise service bus distinctive from just wrapping my services in my my uh, legacy apps and web services and calling them directly, or using BizTalk as a transaction coordinator. Okay, so um, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, for instance, uh, you want to. Um, have a client that, let's say, uh, intended to uh, send messages to X number of services um, independently of uh, where they are with request response, gather the responses, and basically send them back to you. And then in the process of that, each uh, recipient uh, 
can technically have different contracts, so you have to transfer a message for that uh, service, send it to the service, receive response back, transform it back, and then aggregate it along with, I mean, uh, calling, uh, using the same procedure uh, again for other recipients. So this pattern is called scatter-gather pattern that we provide a sample for using ESB guidance. Okay. Now, what happens is that uh, this scatter-gather pattern is effectively uh, implementation of the messaging pattern, but with transformation and routing, we are not uh, locked to a certain physical endpoint or a certain type of message. So effectively, uh, if, for instance, you use uh, what we ship um, and then use itineraries, uh, that effectively uh, scatter-gather implemented as orchestration can be uh, itinerary service uh, that is used for that kind of interaction, right? So that's one of the examples where... Um, the ESB and itinerary makes perfect sense, right? Because depending where client is, you cannot rely that a client actually can do these complex um, service interactions, right? Okay, I think my mind is blown. Yeah, I'm trying to hold on. But this is very, <laughs> very cool. I mean, it's just a very large way to think about the problem. I, I like the fact that we're we're getting much more into setting up those business rules and this architecture independent of the code as much as possible. Yes. So effectively, I mean, core, uh, let's say um, uh, one of the core features for ESB is itineraries. So effectively, right. itinerary what is set of logical instructions which in our guidance we call itinerary services that define which service, uh, which steps to perform to uh, invoke uh, to compose services, right? So we have two kinds. We have messaging services. These are the ones that are associated with components that we provide for it to be executed on the pipeline. Right. And then we do have orchestration services, which implement itinerary services as orchestration, right, to perform uh, the complex interactions. So, um, so effectively, that allows you to do two things. Uh, first, uh, you can actually um, do um, optimize for, let's say, doing transformation in a pipeline and basically resolving map using again resolving the map and then transforming the message and passing down to pipeline stage. Um, then uh, for um, orchestrations, you can actually chain service invocations and orchestrations and then um, use it declaratively. So the core strength of this approach is that if, let's say, I'm um, a solution provider, right, or service integrator, and then I want to deliver my uh, solution that exclude, includes my uh, basic services and, let's say, my orchestration services. So effectively, if um, this, this is shaped or deployed somewhere on the customer side, you can shape the itinerary services that you use for, I mean, um, effectively uh composing your, um, let's say, entity services, for example, right. as part of your product and just say, okay, if you want to hook it up, here is how you do it. And then within the bus, you can make fully configurable way of how you add that particular itinerary services into a bigger itinerary, right? So effectively, mm -hmm. it forces the reuse and provides flexible composition, right? And it's all declarative. Well, and that seems to be the big thing here is that we're taking a bunch of services we already have, or, you know, which are really just apps, but they're various apps we've already built. We're sticking this layer onto them so that other apps can get to them fairly easily. And then we're creating a construct to put some rules around that, being able to discover them, being able to limit what can use them and how and how they should be coordinated together. Dimitri, what is, what is the security model with, uh, let's talk about BizTalk as the implementation of ESB. For Microsoft, what's the the security model? Is it built around WCF? Is it built around uh, Azimex? Are there places where you can roll your own? What's the what do you get? 
out of the box? Well, I think uh, that's actually, um, I mean, provided by product. So effectively, what you can do is apply uh, security policies depending on which uh, endpoint you're exposing, and you can do it in multiple ways. You can expose SMX, you can expose WCF, and uh, that means that for these particular endpoint types, um, uh, different security policies, right, or same uh, pattern but different technical implementation for the policy will apply to configure it, right? So and that's provided by Bistoka out of the box. Okay. So that doesn't, there, there isn't, in the definition of an enterprise service bus, there isn't a slot for security that's provided by whatever um, transport or your, that you're implementing on a particular uh, communication. Well, I got to imagine in a scenario like this, it depends on the enterprise. This could be all internal to one data center. Well, here is what uh, what is kind of happening uh, right now regarding what uh, the solutions that we have for uh, SOA. Uh, if you see at um, if you look at three w microsoft SOA uh, page, then you see for SOA solutions along with CSB. Uh, we also provide a solution which we call the MSE, Managed Service Engine. So um, that solution allows you to uh, centrally manage policies, security policies, and actually expose uh, your physical services through what uh, we call virtual services or virtual endpoints. So effectively, that acts as a software service router that is able to verify the policy, uh, resolve uh, and dispatch message to physical endpoint and do a transformation. It's also available on CodePlex. So um, that's another example of how you can do, I mean, um, centralized policy if you want that level of indirection. Right. And this actually helps very well and it has been very well received for scenarios where you need service versioning, right? Yeah. Because once you have that uh, virtual endpoint and you can version by operation um, and create different um, uh, virtual contracts, if you wish, then you have uh, full control not only how uh, you secure the services and how you collect the data, who calls them, but you also have full control about versioning the services and then... Uh, defining where is the physical endpoint that is going to be invoked. Very good, very good. So I'm on CodePlex at codeplex.com slash ESB. So that's yep. sort of the Enterprise Service Bus Guidance page on CodePlex. And right up front there, there's a great graphic that shows the Java messaging systems on one side, mainframe on the other side, database, email, app service, so forth, all sort of bond together in the Enterprise Service Bus. You know what's not on this diagram? BizTalk. Where is BizTalk in this diagram? So if you go to msdn.com and go to developer centers. Yeah, so msdn.microsoft.com, developer centers. Yeah, so in developer centers, uh, you need to look at pat- uh, for patterns and practices. Right. Uh, if you look at feature downloads, you will on the right side. Then you will see, uh, create, uh, for future downloads, you have enterprise library, Unity, uh, smart and web client, and down there, Microsoft AFB guidance for Bistock to Sound 6R2. Do you see? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so now I'm in the right place. It. I'm looking at enterprise service, ESB guidance for BizTalk server, R2006 R2. Right. And there's that same diagram from codeplex dot slash ESB. The one that doesn't yeah. have BizTalk on it. Right, because that's that's the illustration of ASB as architectural pattern. Now, if you okay. scroll down, then you will see another diagram, which we call architecture and components for Microsoft ESB guidance. Do you see that? Right. Figure so two. further down we get that second figure there is where we really get into here's how BizTalk service is really the hub of all this activity. That is precisely right. 
And that's that message box database, the orchestration engine, transformation engine, everyone, everything talks to these pieces. So how would we build an ESP without BizTalk? Are you talking about in general? Because there yeah, are other like products out there. How's the rest of the world doing this? There are other products out there that do this. Yeah, there are other products out there that do that. Uh, and uh, there is a product from IBM. There is a product from Sony, uh, Sonic. Uh, software. There is a product from others. Um, where does Amber Point fit into this equation? Okay. So, uh, if you're looking at uh, enterprise requirements right now, the governance is one of the must, right? So, effectively, uh, you have to have um, approach for uh, for the governance. Now, what we did with the guidance, if you see here, is that um, when we uh, worked on the guidance, uh, we uh, collaborated with so software number points to um, see how we can help them to uh, provide the governance solutions for BSTOC. So effectively, with the guidance, we do provide um, core services for uh, SO software number point, and we actually integrated with uh, SO software registry as well. So we do have a resolver for that. Cool. So Amber Point's got these SOA-based apps that work with a lot of different platforms, and BizTalk just integrates right into them. Right. So, uh, and then um, uh, there is also... Um, uh, document should be available documentation from Amber Point that shows how uh, what is the Amber Point story for BSTOC. and uh, I believe um, there are several presentations, and we also uh, clarify in documentation how uh, what the approach is for so a Amber Point and what's what uh, you're allowed to do to make your governance story successful. And so this, and this whole governance story is about managing services, uh, figuring out how the security relationship works, how you handle errors and exceptions, all that sort of thing. That's what we're, when we really talk about runtime governance is all those bits coming into one place. Uh, right. So, uh, also, if you look at what we have released, uh, we do have, uh, a framework and then, um, uh, uh piece of infrastructure for um, exception management. So we do have exception management framework that allows you to um, uh, programmatically create your uh, folds and then embed messages into these folds. We do provide uh, routing of these folds to um, exception management database. And we do provide exception man- uh, ESB management portal that allows you to publish on point to re- registry, uh, review exceptions, uh, do message resubmission if you receive the fault, and we also do support alerts and analytics, so you can actually see uh, help uh, for your BSTOC application, and then you can define alerts that if certain type of faults happen, then you have to, I mean, send email to with notification. So, and we do provide this man- uh, the management portal as a sample. Um, uh, simply because uh, we know from experience that nobody is 100% happy with the portal. So we decided to give it as a sample and in hope that we will get feedback and people will um, uh, extend it and tell us what is missing there. So we can certainly uh, learn from it as we're moving forward. When I'm thinking about the portal, I think about it just integrating as part of, say, something like System Center Operations Manager. I'm sorry, I'm showing off my IT chops now, but Ops Manager, to me, seems like the tool you'd want all that information to be fed into. Uh, well, the guidance was released in November. So, right. effectively, uh, we did not align with System Management Center, and it was the decision that we made uh, just because uh, for um, the core scenarios, we saw that uh, it will be more valuable to actually provide infrastructure for externalizing faults right. and provide better resubmission story, right, which is very important. So uh, 
since, I mean, if, let's say, your SLA is broke and fault is generated and some message is not delivered, then um, you can inspect the fault and see what you can do. And at the time when you actually resubmit, uh, the situation may change, right? So it's already, let's say, some uh, in some case, you had a manual escalation, so problem has been already solved. So you don't need to submit this message at all. Right. Or uh, you need to resubmit it to another um, uh, endpoint to compensate. So effectively, we do provide that functionality. So also, if you look at the architecture, uh, we talked about core services. We talked about BSTOC. We talked about itinerary services, management portal, and UDDI. And then on the exception management side, as you see, um, we do provide uh, actually a full service. So external application can submit fault as well. We're not right. limiting only for BSTOC. Um, and then uh, we do also provide uh, concepts like on-ramps and off-ramps. So oh. as you see from the diagram, on-ramp is effectively... Um, the way you receive message, right, over different right. protocols, right? So the equivalent, uh, the equivalent in BSTOC is receive location, receive port, and then uh, pipeline with pipeline components that we provide uh, for uh, in ESB guidance. And then off-ramp um, is equivalent to BSTOC send port and pipeline configuration, right? Right, pushing the data back out to some other external service. Right, and then potentially receiving reply and correlating it to the itinerary that was in request, so you can actually continue um, uh, itinerary execution, right? And in web services, really are on and off ramps as well, I mean, aren't they? Yeah, sure. So on and off ramps is uh, basically a way that message coming into ESB and going out to target service that is part of your um uh, uh, i mean composition right services right. that you compose yeah what other types of samples do you provide and patterns and practices uh, around ESP? we provide a lot of samples so we do provide transformation samples uh, sample we do provide scatter gather sample as i mentioned before we do provide itinerary sample we do provide uh Exception management samples. We do provide UDDI um, uh, publishing sample with sample application of how you can publish the UDDI. Uh, since we do support uh, a resolution through UDDI using UDDI services. And um, in addition to that, uh, we also have samples for uh, dynamic resolution where you actually don't use itinerary, but you use transform and route for pure messaging scenarios, right? You know, that this is about the only place I've seen UDDI since the, the concept was originally offered years ago. Yeah, whatever happened mm -hmm. to UDDI? And well, I, I see uh, it here on the diagram. I just wonder, what are people using it for? Uh, well, I cannot speak for everybody, but we uh, see that uh, service registry is core uh, part of SOA. Now, if you look at the uh, latest announcement that um, Microsoft did for R3, you see that uh, BSTOC Server R3 will actually come with UDDI services 3.0. Well, I thought the, the server operating system had UDDI built into it. I thought the Windows had it. Doesn't it? Uh, for UDI services 2.0, yes. But from the announcement, you will see that um, this will uh, UDI 3.0 will be coming with R3. Oh, 3.0, okay. Well, and, it, and yeah. it, you know, UDDI originally was this concept of shared services over the internet, and I guess that just never went anywhere. Well, I just like to think of it as DNS for web services. Yeah, but it sounds like now it's becoming an internal service. Well, it makes sense because most web services aren't public. You know, most of them are used in the enterprise. That's what I could never figure out about UDDI. You know, you it was great for samples of web services that return zip codes just to test your applications. But, you know, other than the Amazons and the Ebays and the, the Googles and the, those people who have services, you know, most of the web services that are 
done or enterprise. Okay, well, was that a question or a statement? Now we're just talking. Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, Dimitri, do you agree basically the UDDI is gone internal to the enterprise? The idea of the public UDDI, UDDI server is dead? Um, I wouldn't make this conclusion right now. I uh, I do think for um, for the UDDI three uh, zero we actually do have compelling story, and for uh, UDDI two zero as we use it right now, it is actually a very good story. So because uh, if if you look at core SOA uh, service registry is the core piece, right? So effectively you have client, you have service, and you have a registry. So uh, I would not speculate of uh, particular um, kind of implementations of UDDI, but as the story goes, this is uh, the great story, and I think um, it's used very well, and we actually wouldn't be using UDDI 2.0 in the guidance if we wouldn't have thought that this story is compelling, right? And it's actually good. At least some capacity. Yeah. But it really comes to the idea that I have an application that doesn't know where a service is, that it can ask in a generic way for a service. And I just see that as unlikely. Well, uh, I think it's actually uh, opposite. Uh, it is very likely. Uh, if you look at uh, the bigger picture, right, for uh, how, uh, I mean, core principles of SOA, the core principle is that you never know static location of the service uh, in advance on the client. You effectively need to provision it and you need to resolve it. And then the idea is that you actually need to discover which service to use depending on your current scenario, right? So, and this is the core principle of uh, what we're trying to do. So effectively, using our resolvers, you can discover what appropriate service is. As I said, on demand, right? You can do it as a resolution step when you're executing itinerary. Depending of uh, what the scenario is, we do provide that functionality. So you, that would be the starting point of this app, would be to go to the UDI service and say, I need one of these, one of these, and one of these. And then it's going to start giving us that, that resolver information. Well, if it's client responsibility to resolve, then yes. If client relies on um, uh, enterprise service bus to resolve, then it will be executed as a step after message is submitted along with the itinerary. Right, in which case BizTalk's the one doing the coordination for that. Yes. Okay, I, I get that. that. It's very different from what we were talking about in like 2000. Yes. But it, it seems more intelligent now, too. Yeah, and think about that. Let's say you are distributing uh, your uh, application, let's say, on CD around the world, right? And then uh, all you need to do is install it, run it up, and then these applications, let's say, I need to talk to the headquarters services. Now, if you have uh, UDDI, then effectively you don't need to worry about, I mean, reconfiguring UDDI involving your services or you use another kind of service registry to do that. So it becomes very natural and um, uh, very effective, right? And that's kind of primitive example. Yeah, I, I haven't seen an app like this, but I'd like to. It's, it's fascinating to me that we could get to that level of abstraction. So one other angle on this, we sort of started touching on this. We talked a little bit about monitoring and so forth. And you mentioned the SLA, the service level agreement. Do you feel like we're at a point now where BizTalk could end up being our service level agreement enforcer, that we could actually lay down the rules that are in that contract inside of BizTalk and it would tell us when we're in violation? Well, I mean, you can do it right now with uh, BizTalk and uh, Mompack for BizTalk. So you can actually track these cases. So we actually do have a good story on that. I, I guess it's just, I don't think you see it described that way. I'm imagining I could probably code my way out of it, but the idea that I could actually have an area called the service level agreement configurator 
and could go in and set all these rules about time for transaction and, you know, performance specs and uptime specs and so forth, and then be able to see a dashboard that showed me how close to compliance I was. It fascinates me. That would be awesome. That, uh, if, if you want to see, I mean, a uh, real time dashboard without using Mompack, uh, then, uh, you can look into solutions that saw a number of point provides, right? What did you say? Mompack? M O M pack? Yes, for yeah. Microsoft Operations, uh, Operations Manager. Manager. Okay. Yeah. And Mom, to some degree, does that. It doesn't really organize stuff from the perspective of an SLA. It'll give you the overall stats, but to actually break it down into given agreements for given services, that's that's a different thing. Ah, uh, that is correct. And you also said besides Mom, there was some other alternatives? Uh, well, you can use uh, SOA number points, right? Right, and, Amber uh, Point, it, I know, has been yeah. pushing on that angle of things. Yeah, so so software and Amber Point are two solutions for governance that you can use. And um, um, as I said, we do provide reference references to those, and uh, that's another possibility to look for, I mean, um, actually monitoring, collecting uh, data for SLA, right? It's very fascinating stuff. And, 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 you know, this is really where we're bumping into the bridge between software development and operations, where we're pushing some of these rules into an operations mode, and we need to be able to enforce them at an operations level. And we might actually invoke software development based on a non-compliance uh, mm-hmm. side of things, which I, I just think it's a change in the way we do development, that we would actually now have ops coming to us asking for development. It's definitely a different beast from writing your own code. I mean... I, I've seen customers struggle with this. You know, should we use BizTalk? Should we write it ourselves? You know, you have all the tools to write this stuff. It's just a matter of effort and complexity and uh, and time. Right? Um, I I I think what uh, what you can see right now with BizTalk as I mean. Uh, Swiss Army Knife product and uh, what we have provided in the guidance, um, we don't have price tag for the guidance, so it comes free. Yeah. Now, we are going through uh, the same quality gates as product does when we ship, and then we have zero price tag. So our goal is to help our customers to use BSTOK infrastructure effectively and show yeah. how to apply these patterns using that infrastructure. So effectively, we are trying to make our customers more successful. We try to show them how these patterns can be applied. And then they have full um, ability to embrace it, use it, change it, because for guidance, we ship source code always. So effectively, we're not locking anybody to um, use a particular set of hard-coded components. I think... um, our goal is to show and share the knowledge and best practices of how to use this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've always found it fascinating, the Patterson Practices Group. You guys don't make any money. No. No, pure evangelism. <laughs> well, not just evangelism, I mean, direction. Well, it's not only just telling us great products to use, but if you're going to use them, use them like this. Yeah, very true. So, uh, Dimitri, what's next? Uh, are we going to see an Enterprise Service Bus 2 incarnation? I, I, fi- I feel like BizTalk 2006 is getting a little long in the tooth. We're due for something new. Okay, so um, you do know that uh, Microsoft announced that uh, BizTalk R3 will be coming. Okay. So, um, now, um, the, please don't quote me because our plans are still kind of in works uh, and of course they may change but currently our intent is to um, plan for next version of ESB guidance that is going to be aligned with Bistock R3. Cool. Very cool. So there will be an R3 of BizTalk 2006 like it's never going away and there'll be a new ESB to go with it. Well, uh, we plan for it, and that's kind of our intent. As I said, it may change, but um, uh, the most important part to help us in this direction is to give us a feedback of 
uh, how uh, this dog and the guidance we shipped is actually um, being adopted. So I think it's important for us to get customer feedback and then learn from it. So when we move forward, we uh, do work better because everything evolves, right? Not, nothing is static. And then um, we also want to uh, help everybody uh, to succeed and we're willing to listen. Uh, because we are very customer driven and, uh, customer actually dri- customers actually drive our features and provide feedback. We drop ongoing work, uh, monthly. So it's free for everybody to review. We do it through Codeplex. So, um, if we can get help with feedback of, um, what customers are looking for and how, uh, ESB guns and Bistock R2 is adopted, that will greatly help us to move forward, right? And looking on CodePlex under the ESB uh, section, I see conversations going on even today uh, around uh, utilizing the guidance uh, with different technologies. Yeah, we are, we have great community. Uh, Always we're have. very happy with feedback that we got, and um, we see um, a community as uh, the best way for support. Because, uh, as I said, uh, the important part is sharing knowledge. So we do it through the guidance, through the code, through documentation. And then, of course, uh, our focus is to help share the knowledge and uh, help everybody to be successful. And then we do have um, many uh, of my colleagues and, I mean, uh B-Stock MVPs and the group of um, uh, very uh, good colleagues all around the world that helped us with version one. And uh, it's very important for us to get feedback and uh, help um, our customers, right? So it's a great way to communicate, and we're very happy with it. Um, and we're learning from it. So, for example, we know that uh, installation uh, instructions that we provided were not too great. And uh, we got a lot of help from um, uh, our colleagues and basically uh, customers that just made their recording of the video to make this um, installation story better, and we're grateful for it. So everybody is helping, and uh, I hope it will continue. So, And that's mostly appreciated, right? Well, we certainly appreciate the effort that you guys put into this stuff. It helps us out a lot. Us people in the trenches. <laughs> uh, Dmitry Asipov, thanks very much for being on the show and telling us all about your realm of knowledge here. It's great stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. All right. And we'll see you next time on Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.